Hey guys, it's Faith. Welcome back to another episode of the Radical Transformation Podcast. I'm so excited to be here with you guys. I'm so excited for this episode. I'm like losing my mind, you guys, because I'm interviewing one of my favorite ladies in the whole world today, was gracious enough to come on here and let me interview her. And she has a really powerful story she's going to share with you. So I'm so excited. So I want to introduce you guys to my friend, Lauren. Lauren, do you want to go ahead and tell them a little bit about yourself and what you do? Yeah. First of all, thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm so excited to be here and I feel like your hype and your energy, like I could just feel it and just gets me like feeling so safe in this conversation. So thank you so much for that and the work you do in the world. Um, yeah. What's up? My name is Lauren Eliz Love. I'm the founder of a company called What is Perfection? And I now run an element of that called Badass Business Babes, where I teach women how to really step into their power in business. But my roots really started with building a personal brand called What is Perfection, which was about helping women overcome those insecurities in their life and like really claim who they're truly meant to be just in their lives in general before I did the business avenue that I'm in now. Um, so I went through a really rocky period of my own life, and that was what really led me and felt really created the calling for me to be like, hey, come and create your own thing. Come and create a blog so you can come and share your stories with the world. And so that's how that transition for me happened. And I'm in my 30s, just living life. And yeah, it's pretty much me. I think that's one of the things that inspires me the most about you, as I know you transformed from a really dark time and took the things that you've struggled with. And now you help so many women. I mean, you have a huge following online. You help literally so many women. And I think that's so amazing that you're able to take your struggles and turn it into such a gift for so many people. I would love to hear a little bit about your mental health journey. I know that you have a big story, but I've only ever heard parts of it. I've heard parts of it on our coaching calls and through being friends with you and following you online and I'll hear little parts of it, but I haven't heard the whole story. So if you're willing to go into that, I would love to hear what your mental health journey has really been. Sure. And I don't know like how I always say like you can go as deep or as shallow as you want to go. Right. So like I'm going to do my best not to have this be a 45 minute answer. <laughs> you just make everything as like concise as possible, but I'm willing to explore anything and, and everything in that you know conversation so um my journey started with mental health i remember my i was in middle school and i would i had just been sexually assaulted and i didn't know what that was right like not to dive in like and have this crazy deep emotional conversation right out of the gate but like as a young teenager i didn't really understand what that meant i just had this emotional consequence of it and I remember, you know, not telling my mom or my dad what I had been through, but one day just having, I was, I was watching TV on the couch and I was like in my depression space where I didn't want to get out of bed and I didn't want to go hang out with friends and my parents noticed something was wrong. And I remember them waking me up on the couch and saying, Lauren, we want you to go talk to somebody. We think that you need to go talk to somebody. And that was my first introduction to like what the mental health world even was. I didn't know about antipsychotics or medications or mood stabilizers. I didn't know what therapy was. Um, I just had two parents in my you know teenage years who were like, hey, something's off with our kid and we don't really know what to do. So let's take her somewhere. 
at the time I had these really, really painful waves of depression, which, you know, I don't, we can always have that conversation. Are you born with it? Or is it something that happens to you? But from there, I spent these crazy long years of my life trying to get away from the sadness, trying to find joy and happiness that I saw so many other people having and like thinking, oh, they're happy. Why can't I be happy? Like what's wrong with me? And then from there, my freshman year of college, trying to deal with all of this, taking antidepressants, I was in a place where I was dating an asshole, which I think a lot of women do, right? Like, who, in there. we look, we like look for love. College. Isn't that part of college? <laughs> it's, it's like 101. Like, yeah, you have to take English lit and date at least one asshole that slightly <laughs> ruins your life. <laughs> oh my God, it's so true. But like a lot of it, I think too, like when you're young, you're like looking for significance and recognition. You want to feel something. And so you look to other people to make you feel those things because you really don't know how to feel that way about yourself. Um, and so I found this guy who was incredibly abusive and just, it ended up creating a date rape experience on campus that I had never in my life imagined. And from there, I reached this point where I was like, oh, it's fucking hopeless. And I attempted suicide and I ended up in the hospital and then sent to a psychiatric ward for a couple of months. Like I was in a dark place, right? Like I'm happy now and I'm in this beautiful space of life, but it took such a journey to get there. Um, and even since then, like there's more with my mental health where I've had to learn and embrace the fact that I'm going to take a pill every day. Right. And like, you've seen that on social media. That was like a struggle for me to figure that out. Um, it was a long journey. Yeah. Long journey. That's one of the most like admirable moments I've, and I, you're someone I looked up to immensely, but one of the biggest moments of like, wow, this girl is amazing was your journey going back on Prozac because you had went off of it really publicly and like claimed it as something you were really proud of, which is amazing, but ended up having to go back on it. And I think a lot of people would have hid from that and not admitted that on social media and just would have like been like, maybe I'll leave that part out. <laughs> and I remember you were like sitting on the floor and you were like, I have to tell you guys the truth. And I was like, shit, like I respect her so much. Mm -hmm. And it you was know what, you know what it is? Like, I think about this because as I've grown and put myself out there publicly, I think the biggest trait that's a non-negotiable for me is authenticity, right? Like, I don't ever want people to see something that I'm not on social media. I want them to see everything that I am. And like when I went off of medication, I thought that I could do it. Like I really thought I could do it. And that's a really common pattern for anybody with mental illness. It's the, the, the effect of, hey, I'm on this medication and I feel really fucking normal. So maybe I don't need medication at all, oh, yeah. right? I've done it too. I have a whole podcast episode about yes. the exact same thing. That's like, I have to go back on antidepressants because it's like, you feel like you have it all figured out, right? You're like, I have my self-care on point. I know how to do it. I've healed all my trauma. <laughs> I've got it all under control. And as soon as you think that, that's, I feel like when there's like a whole nother layer, right? Oh my God. Like, here's some more stuff for you to learn and unpack. <laughs> and it's so terrible because I think, like, one of the really big screw-ups with mental illness that we don't talk about enough is this concept of when you take the pill, you feel really good. But the t when you go off of the pill, if, you, if your body really needs it, it takes all of this time 
to slowly come to the realization of like, hey, I'm a fucking mess and I need this pill back in my life. And my husband and I had long conversations about it because he wanted me to go back on medication for so long, but he sees things I don't see, right? He's an observer of my life. I'm an experiencer of my life. And so it's hard for me to see things that sometimes the people around me can see. And Faith, I was struggling, right? Like I I had this whole public life on social media and I didn't want to get out of bed on most days. And I was a wave of emotions and feeling so sad for no real reason, right? Life is beautiful. Like, why would I feel that way? And I remember thinking like, I want to go back on this pill because I really think that maybe this is what my body needs right now. But like, what will people think, right? The fact that I publicly came off medication, like, wow, look, she did it. I can do it too. Oh wait, no, she didn't do it. Like (laughs) she needs to go back. And I remember thinking, if I'm going to go back on medication, I have to be prepared to tell people that that's what I'm doing. So when I did that, I was like, I know I'm going to be sharing this. And that took me months. It took me four or five months of thinking, should you go back on it? Should you not go back on it? And then I finally was like, nope, you're going to do it. And you're going to tell people and that's it. And the minute I went back to the doctor, I just knew I was supposed to be there. Like it, I felt so much better in following my truth. But social media, like, totally shames us for taking a pill. Like, you can't be spiritual if you're taking a pill or you're clouding your channel if you're taking a pill. The stigma is so real, even for people like you and I who have worked in the mental health space and are advocates for mental health. The stigma is so freaking real. And even for me to go back on them, like, I did the same thing. I went off of them. I didn't tell my audience I went off of them, but I went off of them and I was like convinced. I was like, I have this figured out. I've done it. I've overcome depression. (laughs) I did it. (laughs) I've made it. And I went off of it and then I went back on and I ended up making a podcast episode about it because I I had this really struggle because you have to be really honest with yourself and decide. It's like humbling in a way because you're like, I have to put what's best for me over my ego and over wanting to have you want almost this weird idea of like I beat it or I like I did it Mm -hmm. right which is so weird because that's not how mental health works yeah but even though you know that the stigma is so I mean there's so many layers to it yeah when I was a kid this I I got a taste of the stigma when I was young and I remember my mom we were going to my grandmother's house after I had just started taking medication for the first time. And we were in the car and my mom turned to me and she said, can you do me a favor? Can you not tell your grandma that you're taking medication? And I was so hurt by that. I was like, why? Right? Like what's, what's wrong with taking a pill? Like, why do I have to hide this? And so I spent a great deal of my life, like even when I was in corporate and I had to take medication, I would run into the bathroom and like take it in the stall so nobody would see me because I had this idea that like if anybody saw me taking a pill, they would think I was crazy and I wouldn't be able to work there anymore. Like that was really a fear I had. And as I've gotten older, I've, you know, I've dealt with that. I'm 30 now, right? I'm proud of taking medication because it allows me to be stable. But there are so many kids out there who feel the stigma and feel it strong, man. Yeah. I wasted 10 years of my life because I started being depressed 
at 15 and then I got on medication at 25. So I really feel like I lost 10 years of my life not you being on medication. 10 years? Mm-hmm. And so that's with untreated clinical depression. And so that's why I'm so passionate about talking about medication because I really feel like if I had gotten that even in college, even in my early 20s, like, because I feel, I feel like I lost those years. Like that time was just gone and I can't get that time back. And so that's why I always am talking to my audience about it's not necessarily that you have to go on medication, but you have to do something, right? You have to do something. You can't do nothing. So whether that answer, you know, is exercise or therapy or medication is different for everyone, but don't do nothing. I think I was stuck in this place thinking, I just thought that's how I, how I was. I just thought that's how life was. And I didn't do anything for over 10 years. I mean, really think about it. Like you only have one body. How are you in the world supposed to know what you're supposed to feel like, right? Like (laughs) you literally have no concept of like, what is happiness actually supposed to feel like? What is joy actually supposed to feel like? I remember taking a pill, going outside and like standing in, and I know this isn't a conversation about why you should get on medication, but I vividly remember this, taking my medication and one day being outside having a cup of coffee in my hand, listening to music and being on the city streets and looking around and smelling the smells and going, oh my God, I feel so here, right? Like I could feel present for the first time and like grateful for that. And I didn't have that when I was depressed because I was in a constant state of anxiety or overwhelm or sadness. And so I think sometimes like it's hard to know that you need help because you're always that way. And you're like, well, how do I know that this is wrong? Yeah, I just thought that's how I was. (laughs) I was like, oh, this is what life is just hard. And I'm like, you know, things are just hard for me. And that's Mm -hmm. how it was. So it took me so long to find those answers. And that's why I I love talking publicly about it now, because I just want to help as many women as I can, you know, not do what I did and waste that Mm -hmm. time. I want to kind of circle back because I know you talked about your suicide attempt. And I know that there's people listening to this that are in a dark place and having a hard time. And I just, I wonder if you could go back in time and tell that girl something, what would you tell her? You know, that's a really good question because I, I will be very honest. I don't regret my suicide attempt. Um, It made me, me, and it brought me on a journey of really healing things that if I hadn't attempted suicide, I don't think I would have been able to really heal. And that's not a lesson to go out and take big risks to end your life. I mean, that's the complete opposite of what I want to convey. But I think I don't feel ashamed, right? Like, I so my, my thing, and just like anybody who attempts suicide, I think the thought of living is more painful than the thought of dying. And that's why you attempt suicide. And so for me, it happened right after my rape, where I went a week of missing my classes in college, followed by being unable to sleep, having really serious nightmares, being afraid to take a shower because I didn't want to look at my body because I was so ashamed. And then at that point, after all of these days of not sleeping, the stress, the anxiety, the overwhelm, the thought of living in that state of psychosis, so to speak, of like paranoia and and sadness, 
all of that was more painful to me than the thought of trying to end my life. And so I did. And I took um, a handful of Adderall and a handful of um, Ambien's. Adderall and Ambien's. Because I was like, one's an upper, one's a downer. They're just going to work together and just kill me, right? Like that was my fucked up theory. And so I got pills from people on campus. And I thought I would just like knock out and go to bed. And that's not what happened. So what ended up happening was I saw double, like my, I started to see, like, if I was looking at your face, I would see two of you. And like, I just knew something was going wrong. I turned to my roommate and I was like, Brittany, you have to call an ambulance. I took a bunch of pills and I started going crazy. And I realized in that moment that I didn't want to die. Right. Cause it's like, it wasn't glorious. It was fucking terrifying. And so she didn't know, but my the person who raped me was the person she called and she didn't know that I was raped. So he actually ended up taking me to the emergency room, which was terrible. So like I'm near death. And then we go into the hospital and I black out for like probably eight or 10 hours unconscious, just having like IVs set up and having them monitor my process. I didn't have my pump, my stomach pumped or anything, but I remember waking up and him standing there with like this big teddy bear. And I was just like, oh my God, like, I can't escape this. But I knew that dying wasn't the answer. So I think circling back, like, what would I tell that younger version of me? I think I would tell her that the emotion that she was feeling, the stress, the sadness, the feeling like there's no means to an end or that you need to escape, I would tell her that those were emotions that she needed to honor and seek help rather than trying to run away from them. Because that's all suicide is, is I want to run away from my emotions because they're so painful. And I think if I told her anything, it would be, hey, like these emotions you feel, honor them, go seek help, go talk to somebody and don't be ashamed of what you're feeling because I was ashamed of it. Don't be ashamed of feeling what you're feeling and express it to somebody because once you do that, the healing journey begins, right? Like it wasn't until I faced all that stuff that I was able to heal. What was your process kind of like for starting to heal that? So you had this pivotal moment with the suicide attempt, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. And then you were like, okay, I want to start healing all this trauma I've been through. And then what was that process kind of like? So the second time I felt like attempting suicide, I got better, right? I went home from the hospital. I went back to school, like nothing happened. Um, the second time I honored the emotion and I sought help and I went to my on-campus doctor, right? And it was just like, something's wrong. Um, went to the hospital and the doctor there knew what I had tried to do before. And so <laughs> the journey unfortunately started without me having control where the doctor basically said, hey, we know you've attempted suicide before and you're here in the hospital now you're a threat to yourself. And so I'm ordering that you go get admitted into a psychiatric facility. And I was like, fuck no, I'm a teenager. Number one, I don't want to go to a crazy town. Number two, I'm in college, right? In a, in a state that I don't know anybody in, right? I was in, you know, away at school. And number three, if you do that, my parents are going to find out like, oh my God, And so I said, no, I'm sorry, I have to leave. I can't do that. And he said, well, honey, if you don't, the insurance isn't going to pay for this hospital visit. And that's $35,000 that your parents are going to have to pay. Oh, my God. And I bet he was lying. Like, none of that was true. I think it was the (laughs) leverage he was trying to get. Because if you don't agree with the doctor, that insurance won't pay for the experience, right? 
So I was basically shipped into the psych ward and I had a friend on campus who like brought you know, a box of cigarettes for me because I was a smoker at the time. I was like, just give me a pack of cigarettes and a journal. And I still have one. Yeah. And I got a spiral. This was the crazy thing. I was so naive. I didn't know what this was like. I got a spiral journal. And when you go into a psych ward, they strip you down and they like check your bags for everything to make sure you're not bringing in anything that's like not allowed in a psych ward. I couldn't bring in my spiral notebook because the spiral, like you could try to kill yourself, right? Um, or hurt yourself or harm someone. So anyway, it was just a big shock, right? And so I'm in the psych ward with a wide variety of people and there's like alcoholics and drug addicts who, you know, are forced to be there by court. And then there's patients of the state who are so mentally ill. Like this one woman came up to me, she's like, hi, my name is Rosemary. And I just want to let you know, Casper is raping Little Red Riding Hood in the sunroom. And she walked away. <laughs> like just such a, and I'm 19 or 18. I'm like experiencing this. I'm like, what is this place? Um, but that was the start of my healing. And I remember this therapist sitting down with me and asking me what's wrong. And I said, I'm just so afraid of being alone. And she said, well, why? Like, what if, imagine, what if you went to the movies by yourself? And I imagined it and I broke down in tears because the thought of being alone with myself and my emotions and who I was, was fucking terrifying. Like I did not want that. And so unfortunately the start of it was this rude awakening of like, Hey, you're an adult now. And like all of these things that you've been feeling, it's kind of time that you really look at this shit, right? Like, why is it that you can't be alone with yourself? Um, and the rape was pivotal for all of that. But I think I always felt that way. I always felt not good enough and not worthy and, and not deserving or good enough for anything. So um, that was the start of really where I started to really look at myself and, and ask questions that I hadn't asked before and embraced my baggage, right? To say, hey, I was raped and this is who I am, right? Like, and that was really pivotal for me. Yeah, I've heard you speak publicly and tell that story online before. And I love that you're able to, it's an experience, unfortunately, a lot of women have. Mm -hmm. And I think that we don't talk about it or acknowledge it very often, especially not in public space. It's kind of like a secret, like a dirty secret, I think, for a lot of people. Was that part of your healing process, being able to say, like, I'm a survivor? Mm. Well, I think also to there's a period of my life after that where I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder because I didn't tell anybody about the rape at the time, right? So doctors were like, who is this girl that used to be happy and now she's trying to kill herself? Let's give her some antipsychotics. And yes, I was depressed, but I, I don't think looking back that that was the right thing, but I clung to that identity. So I was like, I'm mentally ill. This is who I am. Right. And so my healing process along the way, I had to detach from that. And in order to detach from that, I had to own my rape. Right. Like maybe you're unhappy, not because you were born a certain way, but maybe you have patterns of depression or sadness because of a severe trauma that you've experienced growing up. Um, so once I let go of the clinging to my identity of illness, I could then say, hey, wait, maybe this is something I have to look at. And a great part of my life was healing that. I remember I got all of my journals and notebooks and I typed them all up into this big spiral bound thing. And like, 
replaying and rehashing journal entries. And it was so healing and so eye-opening at the same time because I could see, wow, this is where everything started to fall apart. Uh, and I often spent a great deal of my life trying to dismiss it and pretend like it didn't happen. So I think as women, like our job is to speak publicly and boldly about what we've been through because we need to show other women that this is not something that's a dark secret that you need to be ashamed of. It's something that happened and you're here. Fucking own it, right? I think that's really important. Yeah, that's so powerful. You've been on such an intense journey and I've watched you grow immensely in a very short amount of time. I've just watched you become so successful just in the short amount of time I've known you. But I think you've dealt and spoken really publicly about the fact that you do still have to deal with mental illness, even though you've reached a very high level of success. Mm -hmm. What has that process been like for you? Humbling. Because I think it's, <laughs> it has. It was a really scary thing for me to go back on medication and tell people because it made me feel, in the beginning, it made me feel like I failed, right? Like, I teach women now how to be successful and be happy and create lives that they truly desire, right? I teach that. So why do I need a pill every day? Um, and that was something I really grappled with for quite a while. And I think I just realized that there, this is a part of me and it will always be a part of me. And maybe I was given this part of me as a gift because I can help so many more people, right? Like 90% of the world is on antidepressants or some sort of medication for their mental state, right? Like I think it, it allows me to relate to more women out there and to let them know, hey, you can still have everything that you want your mental illness does not define you. Your mental illness does not make you less than or make it harder. For, I mean, it, sure, it makes it a little bit more challenging, but you're not less entitled to create all of the things that you want, a happy marriage, um, financial success, personal time freedom. Like I used to think these were things that I couldn't have because I had a mental illness. And now I'm here like, no, I can certainly have them, right? I'm just as entitled as everybody else. And so I think it's just that's a, a message that's really dear to my heart that I'm going to be spending the next couple of years exploring in my, in my message on the social media is like, yeah, you have a mental illness. Good for you. Own it. Right. Yeah. That's something I've dealt with a little bit just as a goal achiever is like, I always think, oh, I'll get to this next level. And then all this other stuff will kind of go away or I won't have to deal with this anymore. That's right? what or, I thought. <laughs> yeah. Like I'll get, I'll get to this place in my life or I'll achieve this. And then all of these struggles will just sort of deal with themselves and go away. And those are hard lessons to learn when you reach that level. And then it's like, life has a way of, it's like, no matter where you go, there you are, right? Life has a way of bringing your shit back to you. So oh my God, yeah. And if you think that like a certain thing, like, uh, just get a boyfriend and then I won't be depressed or I'll just yeah. make six figures and then I won't be depressed or like, I got news for you, honey. Like that's, you can't escape your depression with ultimate outcomes and goals and saying, okay, yep, I'm here. Now it's all gone. It, even weight loss, right? Like my depression is easier to manage because I've lost weight and I take better care of my body, but that doesn't mean it's not there. It's still there. Yeah. Yeah. 
I lost my train of thought. <laughs> no, it's okay. I mean, this is such a deep conversation. I'm over here. I'm like, holy fucking shit. Like I haven't talked about some of this stuff in so long and it's just so um, shaking for me. I'm like, oh my God, like, am I saying this right? Am I telling the story? No, it's right? good. You're such like, a good maybe- storyteller. It's perfect. <laughs> I love following you on social media and you're always showing different self-care things that you're doing. What is your kind of self-care routine look like right mm. now? What are you loving right now? Ooh, so my self-care rituals always change. Um, lately for me, like I've gone, I don't drink anymore. I've had bouts where I've gone back and forth where I'll have some wine, like if I have an event or I'm hosting a party, but I've removed alcohol from my lifestyle on the regular because I feel like especially taking medication, it was so hard for me to get back into my regular routine of things after having a drink. Like I severely felt the shift when I started taking medication. Um, So now I don't drink at all. But I think it's important to mention that because removing the bad habits is actually, I think, more exciting for me than some of the bigger self-care habits that I have. So when I start to remove things, I'm like, holy shit, this is what I feel like without taking a drink, right? Like, oh my God, this is what I feel like without having three cups of coffee every day, right? So just detaching from some of those unhealthy behaviors has been really helpful. Um, My big thing lately for self-care is being one with the earth. I know it sounds fucking crazy, but like gardening and repotting my plants with soil and my husband and I are dreaming up like a garden because we're going to live off of the land in the next couple of years and have growing vegetables and fruits. And like, I am so fucking excited for it. Uh, there's something very healing about mother nature. So I've been really trying to immerse myself in that as well as my self-care habits at home being like bubble baths every evening, not every evening, but I mean like you know, a couple of times a week, I'm taking like a nice bubble bath with essential oils and with Epsom salts. The magnesium has been huge for me. And I love waking up in the morning and having an intention setting ritual. So I'll wake up and before I do anything, I go into a quiet, safe space of my house. It's like my favorite spot, my favorite corner. I'll sit down there. I'll journal my intentions for the day. I'll light a candle, say a prayer, and then I jump into whatever my regular day-to-day is. And that's really fun for me because it's like such a beautiful process having been someone who was never spiritual. And now I'm like, let me honor my day with a prayer. Like it just, it sounds crazy, but like, it's actually really fucking fun and beautiful. So I'm doing doing that and buying myself flowers every week, which is really fun too. Oh, I love that. That's such a nice little, (laughs) (laughs) that's a beautiful ritual. I think it's, as women, it's something I've struggled with at least to take care of myself and honor myself and want to like do something nice for myself without feeling guilty. Have you ever struggled with that at all? Oh my God, all the time. <laughs> I, my mom taught me really young that like you shouldn't buy for shit. Like shouldn't buy for shit. You shouldn't buy <laughs> shit that, yeah, don't buy for shit. You shouldn't <laughs> buy shit that other people do things for you for like getting your nails done or go and get your laundry done or folded. And for me, some of the greatest things I get to spend money on now are acts of service, right? Being able to get my nails done or get a massage or, you know, hiring, buying plants rather than like picking them in the woods. I don't know. But I mean, (laughs) my mom just taught me, you know, when you spend money on yourself, because I saw her never doing it. 
So I learned that you shouldn't. And then when I started to seek love and happiness, I was conditioned to think that I couldn't provide those things for myself because it's all translated, right? If you can't treat yourself to a $9 manicure, how do you expect a man to treat you to a nice dinner? If you don't treat yourself to compliments in the mirror every day, how do you expect somebody to want to compliment you? And so I think my biggest healing along my mental health journey was learning how to give myself the things that I wanted from other people, whether it was respect or time, compliments, attention, care, whatever it was. If I wanted it from somebody else, I sure as hell needed to figure out how to give it to myself. And that was a huge journey for me. Yeah, that's so important. I think it's so hard as women to feel at least for me, like to feel worthy and feel like I deserve it. And then when I do those things, it's like, yes, it feels so good. <laughs> yeah, it feels so good. And then like when someone does them for you, it's even better, right? <laughs> yeah. It's you like, have to train men. You have to like set the example. Here's how to treat me. <laughs> oh my God. It is so fucking true. And it's not even from like a condescending way, right? Like it's not to say training men like they're dogs, but you do you train <laughs> You need to train everybody around you, right? Like my, I had such, not to go on a total tangent, but I, I grew up in a very loud and emotionally abusive home environment. And my father used to scream at my mom all the time. And my mom would scream back and like, I'd watch it. When I was an adult, um, I got a little dog, a little pet, a little love my little dog. And I would go home to visit my parents. Sometimes my parents would scream at each other. And my dog would hide and she would shake. She'd be so afraid. And my mom would, what's wrong with the dog? What's wrong? What's wrong with her? What is she doing? So mom, we don't, we don't yell in our house and we don't speak to each other that way. And I can't come here anymore if that's how you guys are going to behave. And it was a real shock for them because I was teaching them what my standards were in the relationship as an adult which was very different than when I was a child, right? They could do whatever the fuck they wanted and I had to listen, I had to receive it. But as an adult, you have to set the boundaries with people and you need to say, these are my standards. This is what I expect in a healthy relationship. And if you can't give that to me, I can't be here. And it's been really shifting for me and my relationships with my parents to be able to do that. That's amazing. That's such a hard thing to do. And I know a lot of people struggle with that, with relationships with their parents. And then as you grow and you change and you become a new person and you have new standards for what life is like, it's sometimes hard for your family to like keep up. <laughs> right? Oh my God. It's so hard. <laughs> they have you like, like peg hold in like this old version of this person you used to be. Mm -hmm. I can't even go to back to my hometown because I will like revert back to like, my 18-year-old self. <laughs> oh my God, stop it. I, honestly, so I used to be the same way. It was so funny because Matt would like mark on the calendar if I was going to visit my parents and he'd be like, all right, so I need three days of you being anxious before you go. And then I need like six days of you recovering when you're back. <laughs> oh my gosh. And he's like, and then finally we'll get back into I our know. life. <laughs> It's, it's so true. So true, though. Anytime I go back there, my parents don't live there anymore, thank God. But anytime I would go back there, I would be like drinking and be out late and like smoking cigarettes, like stuff I would never, mm. ever, ever do as an adult. 
but it's so weird. Those habits die hard. And I think part of it too, is like just being back in those old roles. Cause I would go back to my parents' house and back to my childhood house. And I would be back in those same roles. It was like something in my brain would like regress. <laughs> like, oh my God. 100%. Thankfully they moved. They moved and that really helped me. Cause it was like, now they're in a new house and a new town oh. and like none of my old friends are there. So that's made it a lot easier to kind of reset and be able to be in a different role with them but it has been hard as I've evolved and changed well it's almost like they have to figure out how to relate to you again right like my parents had a really unhealthy dynamic with me where the way I received love was when I had a problem and got attention right like that was my identity and the way I received so like when my parents woke me up on the couch when I was depressed and they were like, you need to, we need you to go talk to somebody. I felt so loved. It's like, wow, my parents really care about me and they're paying attention to me and giving me this source of love is shifting. Right. And so I, I really started to identify with that. And then my parents and I started to form an unhealthy habit where the only time I felt loved or where we truly connected was when I was a damsel in distress who needed saving. And then my parents would come in. And so when I started to create success and I didn't have a problem to solve, that was like, holy fucking shit. Like, how do you relate to each other? How do, how do you have conversations? What do you talk about? Right. It was such um, a shifting experience for me. And I think Everyone needs to remember that too. Like as you grow, the people around you have to adapt and adjust and they may not do it gracefully. They may not understand, you know, the boundaries that you decide to set or the way you start to change your lifestyle or habits or whatever uh, and give those people grace and just understanding that they're trying to figure it out too. That's amazing that you were able to set those boundaries and so direct. So you literally told them like, this is what I will tolerate and I won't be around certain behavior. How did you, have you had issues setting boundaries in the past? Cause I know that's something I struggle mm-hmm. a lot with and have struggled a lot forever. Yeah. With. And it's really sad because like my younger sister is now like kind of picking up where I left off where like she hasn't learned how to set the boundaries with my parents cause she's still in college and my parents still look at her as a kid and all this stuff. But um, to be clear, I think the most important part of setting those boundaries was that I showed up without emotional energy and what I was saying, because it's so easy for that to turn into a fight, right? Like if I was like, mom, you can't talk that way. This is not how we talk. And I'm not going to be here if you don't stop doing that, right? If I showed up that way, huge argument, huge explosion. And I realized that my energy, if I stay solid and calm and centered, they will have no choice but to meet me at that level or else they sound ridiculous, right? And so I had to learn how to not waver in that. So my boundary setting, I think the first thing I had to learn was the emotion in which I show up to have this conversation directly dictates whether or not I will be successful in my outcome. So instead of being dramatic, I was like, mom, we don't talk that way in our house. And I'm just letting you know that if you don't change this habit, I can't show up here anymore because it's not healthy for me. And then she tried to fight a little bit, right? Like, she's like, what do you mean? Like, we're fine. said, mom, I'm not here to argue with you. I'm just here to let you know, like, this is, I love you so much, but this is where, like, I have to stand. And that was it, right? That's why boundaries are so powerful because it's really not about them, right? It's about you and you having a sense of worthiness and self-worth as far as, like, what 
is allowed to be around you and being able to set those boundaries and say, this is, I care about myself so much that these are the environments that I'll put myself in. Right. And even like boundary setting with the people that you love, right? Like I know I love my mom, but I don't see her all the time. Like my husband and I have to set boundaries with each other where we say, you know, his is like, Hey honey, I wake up in the morning. I need two hours where like, you don't talk to me so I can like have my coffee and take a shit and like watch TV. And like, that's his thing, right? Like good for you. You do your thing. But that open communication as a woman who never felt complete or whole herself, I would look at that conversation and go, Oh my God, he doesn't love me. I'm not good enough for him. He doesn't want to spend time with me. But as a complete woman who's like truly confident in herself, I'm like, okay, cool. I could do that. So the elements are really important to recognize of like, do you feel worthy and unshakable in your worthiness when you have these conversations with people? That's really important. Yeah. It's so easy to put meanings on situations that don't need to be there. I do this all the time where I'll be like, oh my gosh, like, I'm not successful or I'm not good enough. And it's like, no, that's not what this means. It's just a normal. (laughs) I do this even like I have friends who I just love to pieces. And like, this has been a new thing for me, like my new level of success. I have friends who the old version of me, when I felt unworthy and not good enough, would have never attracted these people, right? I have women in my circle now who I am so inspired by, who are so caring and compassionate and like, don't bring drama into things and are caring for themselves. But sometimes when they're not texting me back right away, I'm like, oh my God, they hate me. Like they don't want to be my friend. And I spiral, right? Like I go down that rabbit hole. So it's so it's just a normal part of our humanness that this is an old story coming up for us. Your brain loves to make up crazy stories. I have to do that all the time. That's been a huge part of my mental health journey because my brain loves to tell me like, just really negative stories just about your bad and your screw up and you're never going to be able to do anything right. And I have to like reel them back in where I'm just like, no, 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 no. <laughs> like we're not going down that path. I've been down that path. I know what's down there. I don't want to go there. <laughs> so if I can share something on this, cause this is such an important point. Everybody who has high levels of emotions or crazy levels of thought, right? All of this is created through the mind. And the problem with majority of our world, and I would say maybe mostly in the U.S. and Canada, like West, Western ideology, right? We think that we need to think, right? And we, we let our minds dictate everything that we feel, everything that we choose to experience. So if you have a thought that says, I'm not good enough, and then you feel this layer of anxiety or emotion or stress in your body... This is because we think that the brain is right, right? We're like, oh, the brain is leading the way. The brain is telling us what is true and not. The brain is protecting us in fight or flight, right? But the brain is just an organ of our body. That's all it is, right? And so when you can recognize, hey, the brain is not who I am. The brain is not the truth. My soul and my heart and who I am in my being and what I feel in my body and what I know to be my truth, that is who I am, right? And when you can start to separate that, you'll hear the thoughts and you'll go, oh, that's really stupid brain. Like, where did you come up with that, right? And you can separate yourself from it. And I think that's the biggest issue we have is that we don't know how to separate ourselves from our thoughts. We think our thoughts are us and we go down the crazy hole of like, oh my God, it's right. I'm not good enough. This is a mess versus, hey, that's interesting. That's weird. Yeah, I think that's been a game changer for me, at least being able to like objectively look at my thoughts 
and really evaluate what is the story I'm telling myself around this. And then I'll ask myself, is this a fact or is this just a narrative? And it's like being able to take a step back almost and like look at your thoughts and evaluate it and be like, is this an undisputable truth or is this just my brain like, you know, coming up with some kind of chatter? Yes. And I love that. That's such a beautiful step in the right direction where some people will let the chatter just run the show. Right? Yeah. I definitely have an overactive. What did you say? Like over emotional or over thinkers or something? <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, you and me both sister, like we're people who are so intuitive and empathetic, right. And are just in this beautiful new channel of love and connection with the environment. It's almost like we're not taught how to manage that. So like being an overthinker or having high levels of emotions, those are gifts. Those are beautiful gifts. But when you don't know how to use them as a kid and as a teenager, they end up using you. So like, oh why gosh. am I sad all the time, right? Why am I so stressed out when my friends are stressed out? Well, because you have a gift and you just don't know how to use it yet, right? And so that's really important too. That stuff when you're young is so overwhelming. I always hear people talking about women not wanting to get older and all this stuff. And I'm like, I, you couldn't pay me money to go back to being in my early 20s. Cause I know. <laughs> it's like, I was like, yeah, I have like no coping skills at all. You know what I mean? I'm just like, oh no, 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 no. <laughs> it's so much harder to cope with all that when you're young. And it's also too, I think, a really powerful point to you're not that person. Where like, if you look back and you go, oh my God, I made these like really stupid decisions as a teenager or like, oh my God, I was such an embarrassing human when I was in my young adulthood, right? That's not you. That's not who you are. And I think that we all do ourselves a disservice when we look at our past as the definition of who we are, because your past does not in any way, shape or form have to dictate where you go. Right? Like I went from being somebody who attempted suicide actually attempted suicide and now I love my life. I am so fucking happy. I am so grateful. I take a pill every day, but I love my life, right? Like I'm really grateful for everything and I could change that narrative and it's not because I'm special. It's just because I decided that I wasn't going to let the past dictate who I was going to become. And I got really clear about who I wanted to be and then I moved towards that. I love that. Thank you so much for being here and sharing your time with me. I so appreciate you. Do you have any, I wonder if you have a favorite slogan or quote or little like drop of wisdom mm. drop on us. Oh my God, drop. So I have a poster. I have a poster right here. It's a canvas. It says, go confidently in the direction of your dreams. Live the life you have always imagined. And so I will take that and share with you. That in that expression, if you break it down, go confidently, right? Take action. Don't just sit, but actually go, right? In the direction of your dreams is all about knowing and where you want to end up, right? Have a plan, have a vision, create a direction. Don't just show up in your life to be, but show up in your life to move towards something, right? And then this element of living the life you've always imagined so fucking important. It is not about living how you're supposed to. It's not about living to get by. It's not about living because this is how mom or dad taught us, right? Your imagination has something really beautiful for you. Picture it, visualize it, tap into it, and then go in that direction. Let your imagination show you the way. Does that make sense? 
I love that. That's so good. Mic drop. <laughs> Mic drop. <laughs> Thank you so much, Lauren. So you guys, awesome. if you like this podcast, please subscribe on iTunes. Lauren, where can they find you? Um, yeah, so you can come hang out with me on Instagram, Badass Business Babe. I would love to connect with anybody who listened to this podcast and just felt related to it or inspired by it, whatever. Like, I'm always looking to connect with high vibe people. Um, so Badass Business Babe is my Instagram handle. And then you can also find me on badassbusinessbabe.com. Okay. I'll put the links in the show notes for you guys. Please go follow her and show her some love. I so appreciate you being willing to be vulnerable and tell those hard stories and tell some hard truths about your life and just being willing to go there. That's what I love about Lauren. She's always willing to be open and share her truth. Well, that's you, honey. This podcast, like you hold space for that. You're so ready to receive that. So thank you for being there for us and allowing all of these people listening to get this beautiful message about owning your health and your, your mental state. And being <laughs> able to say, hey, I claim this, right? So beautiful. Perfect. Okay. Thank you so much. I'll see you guys in the next episode.